And their babimbap is really good. I don't know. It is, right? <laughs> Baboonbop? The babimbap. I hold on. I'm gonna type this in the chat. Here's what I just heard. <laughs> what? The yeah, I, heard I just heard you say baboon bop, <laughs> like the monkey. I was like, what the heck is baboon bop? <laughs> Oh wow! Oh goodness! Wow. You mean Ew, bibimbap, like, right? Bibimbap, yeah. Okay. On, the, on Korean air for some I'm reason. I'm only, <laughs> I only bring it up because I've heard you pronounce it better. But baboonbap is particularly funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I'm going to contribute to this interview. That, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, and we're here with uh, Dr. Kimberly McGee. Uh, have you tried Korean air's baboonbap? <laughs> You're listening to the John Chi Show. Hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the John Chi Show. It's your your boys, your feasty boys, KJ, Nathan, and Patrick. It's your boys. Um, Patrick, why do we call ourselves the feasty boys? We call ourselves the feasty boys because John Chi. Is that right? Did I get that yeah. right? Yeah. Because in Korean, John Chi means to feast and to celebrate. And that's what we do here on the show. We feast together at the very end. Uh, and before that, we celebrate our shared identities and heritages and cultures and also our different identities, heritages, and cultures. And I can't obviously say heritages <laughs> very well. So, but that's what it's that okay. means. Yeah, because I am actually German mm. uh, and not at all American. So we'd like to talk about how, Guten how we're different. It's I hear you. still the morning. Guten Morgen, as it Guten were. Guten Morgen, sorry. Yeah. Wie geht's, as it were. Wie like geht's, as einen? Uh, wie geht's is like, what's up? So I don't know any German, so I'm gonna say out of it. <laughs> I just know good. like good. Laufen the erste base. Good <laughs> schlagen. Mm. It's a bunch of baseball terms. Run to first base. Good okay. hit. <laughs> it's because I went to Germany a on a mission trip. Oh. Yeah. Uh, My where sister lived we in Germany for German six years. kids how to play baseball. All right. That's all the words that's, I know. I know food that's what, things. That's how German and beer. Kids need to learn about Jesus, right? Through baseball? Yeah, through baseball. Did I, I mean, tell you about that? We should learn everything through baseball. <laughs> baseball is real boring. I mean, since we're on tangents of, uh, of Jesus and everything, did I tell? Did I already say that, that my son asked me or somebody at the park told him that it was Jesus' birthday coming up? And my son was like, oh, cool. Because we hadn't <laughs> actually told him that was the, the reason what Christmas, the, the reason for the season. We hadn't really the, told him that yet. The reason, <laughs> so, for, the the reason for the season. He hasn't is really told us. Multifaceted uh, so and confusing. We, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have that topic conversation soon. So, so he will know. <laughs> but I feel like we kind of dropped the ball on telling him that. So yeah, yeah. depends on how you want to raise your child. I'm not here to well, tell you how to raise. I your would kid. like to raise the I... truth, but let him make his own judgment calls. Oh, so, you know, Hot here's all these things Nathan like Nowak. Santa Claus was a real guy, Chris Kringle. But he's not a guy in a white, you know, white and red suit. Jolly old Saint Nicholas. Sorry if anyone's listening and heard that. Stories that about him. Don't you know that Jesus Christ was born on December 25th or so we believe because it was handed down to us historically through the passage of time? Is that a Hamilton? That's my reference? favorite Christmas carol. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like it could be coming from Hamilton. No, that's, so a, that's a, exactly how that Christmas carol goes. It's Christmas time. It is. It is. The season. I think it's no longer Hanukkah time. 
Is that right? It just what? finished uh, Hanukkah. Yeah, Hanukkah yeah, just, just finished up. Oh. I don't know what, I mean, I don't know anything about Kwanzaa, but Diwali has passed. Mm-hmm. So those are the only holidays that I know about around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, we did advent calendars a little bit when I was a kid. You did? And then we didn't. We had yeah. like, we had a little like advent calendar thing that had like books and then we put them on the tree after we read them. Um, I don't know. Did you ever do like the the paper rings or like the popcorn thing? You know what I'm talking about? No? Okay. No. Like Too Christian? Okay. Never mind. I'll just back away <laughs> into the bushes. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I don't know. Patrick, I, I, have we talked that much about religion? Did you go to church? Uh, I don't know if I've ever really shared my religious journey. Um, oh. So I guess that's what we can talk about. Um, <laughs> I went to many different churches growing up. Um, okay. We were went to a Lutheran church when I was a small baby and in preschool and then i Mm. went to a catholic grade school kindergarten through fifth oh uh i felt really really ostracized there because i was not catholic so every friday we would go to mass and i was not allowed to take communion i was one of two people in my Mm. class so i had to sit there uh and be different not only in looks, but also hmm. in my religious capacity. Oh, you didn't like go walk up and then put nope. your arms in front yeah. of yourself like the cross, be like, no, priest, don't nope. give it to me. Don't didn't give me that bread, me up, even though even I'm hungry. let us get up to go up there. So wow. that sucked. Um, mm. And then I would say I identified as Methodist all throughout high school. Um, I went to, I ended up starting going to like a youth group uh, my sophomore through senior year, which I really enjoyed. Went on a few mission trips, which were pretty powerful, to be honest. Um yeah, so that was my childhood. I would nice. say I'm more... And now you're a Satanist. Yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> subscribed to Satanism, 100%. I mean, if you look at their values, they're not bad, honestly. I, I agree with like 7 out of 10 of them. Yeah, you should check them out. <laughs> okay, no thanks. Uh, what? Just look them up. They're not bad values. They're not? Okay. No. Yeah, I would say I, I, would say I um, am more agnostic now. So mm-hmm. like believing in a higher power, but not necessarily one specific thing. Yeah, that so, that yeah. Chris Martin style. Is is the guy from Coldplay? Yeah, yeah. You've I'm, got <laughs> I'm just higher power. Yeah, I would agree. I'm missing it every second. Yeah, we're probably a little more agnostic Dance now, even though I was hour. raised Episcopalian. Oh yeah. And uh, but then on top of that, my you know wife, uh, her family was Buddhist. Um, some of her family is Christian, so it's kind of a mix all over the place, but. I definitely like the um, Buddhist principles and stuff too. So if I was closer to a temple, I would actually consider doing that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's uh, I, you know, I say whatever gives you security, go for mm-hmm. it. I say as long as you're not utilizing, yeah, <laughs> utilizing those the mm-hmm. your your religion and, and weaponizing it in ways that's harmful to other people. I'd say you can believe in whatever you want to believe in. Totally okay. fine. So as long as you're not declaring a war on Christmas, yeah, pushing don't declare it. a war yeah. on Christmas. Uh, yikes! Well, yikes. I amazingly did not grow up as high church as y'all. Uh, grew up in a Methodist church that was fairly informed by uh, Pentecostalism, which is an interesting like juxtaposition of Christian beliefs. Um, like for a long time, my parents would like pray in spirit languages and I didn't know what was happening when I was younger. Like I thought they were just praying really quickly under their breath. And then I was like, Oh, that's just not even a language. Mm. So that was fun. And then I was like, Oh, this is what's happening. So yeah, 
Um, and we, now I don't know where I'm at. We had a lot of apostolic Christians around oh, yeah. where I grew up. Yeah. So a lot of okay. my, or a lot of people I knew in school and like around our town were AC as we would call. It. I hope that's not derogatory, but <laughs> like it's nah, just the first letter. I mean, letter that's of like assemblies word. of God. So assemblies of I'm God call themselves them like AG. So you good. Oh, okay. All right. You but good. AC, that's what. Dude, there yeah. is so much around Christianity and adoption that like as I'm working through my faith and also digging into adoption and, and Korean cultures, adoptionism is a culture, right? Why not? Um, adoptionism. I subscribe to adoptionism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, just detangling those things is really hard and confusing. And I was actually talking with Jerry about this, like how it's wild how Christianity in Korea, like the way that it happened, essentially caused the peninsula to like ignore thousands of years of culture and tradition and give it up for Western Christianity. And I think that that's really sad. And so, yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just working things out and it's real confusing, but, um, I mean, that's kind of the point of the show, right? Yeah. Is to yeah, we <laughs> deconstruct out. and work things out and be a safe space for understanding everything that comes along with being adopted. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's so, I mean, it is so intertwined, you know, and I think, I think just even if it wasn't, even if you were just approaching this as like analyzing and, and, and understanding our own religious beliefs, it's, you know, there's so many different things and so many different ways to practice and, and believe in things. Um, I think it's that was one of my biggest issues with Christianity after I got to college and, and was growing up. Uh, it just felt really it felt really kind of discriminatory to other things. I felt like it felt like it left a lot of stuff out and that drove me away from the church and really honestly having faith in a lot of stuff. Um, and it only was through, um, just going through a lot of hardships to be honest, uh, to start thinking about faith in a different way, which is how I kind of came upon agnosticism. Um, and just like, because I do believe that there is some form of higher power, but I couldn't, I don't think that I would be ever capable of ascribing or being able to even comprehend what that is. You know, I mean, I want to go to space and I can't even comprehend what it would be like to look out space. of the window of a spaceship and be above the earth. Like, I, like, I don't even know how. And that's when you realize that the earth isn't flat. Yeah, Exactly. Because well, Patrick I, is like, wait, where's the turtles? I guess really quickly, I think what made me think of this is because in my social justice class, uh, we were in a lecture and Amanda talked about the overview effect, which is what astronauts experience when they first go up into space and they look mm-hmm. out like so, super overwhelming. Like, how do you like, how do you handle all of that? And I'm just like, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. That's just kind of what I, that's just, yeah, that's just something that I think about a lot. Yeah. Is getting to that point and being like overwhelmed. And I think I reached that emotionally a lot of, in a lot of different ways and a lot of different times (laughs) at my wedding six times. Um, But (laughs) it's just like, I think it's so, it's almost so unknowable in a way that I'm not qualified to really analyze it or, or define it in any way. Yeah, I would feel the same way if I was floating around in space looking down too. Man, that would be amazing. I would be very overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, also just like the absence of gravity mm. or like oh, the absence right. of like significant effect of your body on and your, audio. gravity on your body. And yeah, and you're Sound. just like, oh, yeah. these things that we take for granted that are a part of who we are, once they're removed, like you just like, you begin to, I would imagine you're just like, wow, this really calls into question every fiber of my being. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like this this type of necessary deconstruction, necessary unlearning and like, separating like i don't know sometimes i'm like man we really go deep on or at least i tend to go deep on this like deconstruction and like breaking myself and my beliefs down to basically nothing so that i can rebuild it stronger and more complex and things but i think that that's a necessary and good process uh to understanding who we are and to building stronger humans and i think ultimately so that we can build stronger worlds build strong children um you know those kinds of things and so that's why i'm really excited for this interview uh, because uh, Dr. Kimberly McKee just is, well, it was an incredible time. And she is the author of Disrupting Kinship, uh, which I have not read, but um, historically on the show, when we talk with authors, like just the level of conversation gets ramped up to mm-hmm. new heights. Uh, and this was no exception. Uh, Patrick, you want to preview what we talk about and in, in, uh, in the interview? Yeah, so Kim shares a little bit more about her own story um, and how a lot of her experiences growing up led to her getting into the field of adoption studies. Um, she talks about you know how the how the idea of the book came about, and she lists off so many people who are foundational in this work um, that'll be included in the show notes. But we talked about just how why the book is called disrupting kinship and why we are, why she's focused on this specific area of adoption studies and what that means for us as individuals and us as community of adoptees. So it's a really great conversation. Uh, I only fanboyed out just a little bit at the beginning. I think I did cut that out though. So it's all fine. Um, But yeah, (laughs) go ahead. It was a constant fanboy moment. Yes. We should put that in as an extra content. That should have been the intro, not my little Blunder. Just Patrick that's screaming on a different, That's off. on a different episode that I <laughs> okay, sent you. Good. So. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, here, without further ado, without further ado, ado here <laughs> is our. E- without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Kim McKee. Roll the clip. <laughs> Roll it. We are back here at the John Chi Show. We have a wonderful guest here today with us. She is an associate professor in the Integrative Religious and Intercultural Studies Department at Grand Valley State University. She's a former assistant director of the Korean Adoptee and Adoptive Family Network, or CON, um, and she is the author of Disrupting Kinship, Transnational Politics of Korean Adoption in the United States. Dr. Kimberly McKee is here with us today. Kim, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me. You are very welcome. Thank we're you for very giving excited us to have you on <laughs> the show. Opportunity, yeah. Patrick is low, he's just doing a really good job at not losing his ever loving mind right now. Yeah, I've so. learned that I can't I can't get too starstruck uh, when we're interviewing <laughs> people because it's kind of off putting. No no joke. But oh my uh, goodness, will, I'm just excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. I'll say that I pushed to when we knew we had to reschedule you initially that I pushed to have you rescheduled as soon as we possibly could because I wanted to have this conversation. So, uh, sorry. (laughs) No, it actually works out perfectly. So no worries. Excellent. Um, We kick off every interview the same way. So we're going to ask, share as much or as little as you would like about your adoption story. 
Oh goodness. Um, so I was a ad- sorry. I like listened to your podcast. I should know. I should know this, and yet I'm really caught off guard. Um, well, I was adopted when I was five months old from South Korea, and I was raised in Western New York. Uh, so I was raised in a suburb of Rochester, New York. Um, and I reunited with my Korean family in 2013 after. Uh, multiple uh, unsuccessful attempts, which some were kind of just like reaching out to the agency. Some were a little bit, um, I think I put a little bit more effort. I was on a a regional television broadcast uh, when I was studying down in Jeonju. Um, But it wasn't until October of 2013 that the agency reached out to me saying my birth mother had reached out to them. Um, And funny story, though, the email which they first sent, they were like, just want to make sure, is this your correct email address? We have news. Like I wrote back and I was like, yes, it is. And, you know, like, tell me the news kind of thing. Um, And so I've been fortunate enough to I was seeing them regularly um, and then obviously have not been seeing them uh, since the pandemic began. And I look forward to, you know, the next time I'm able to go to Korea to see them. That's amazing. Um, did that journey to reunion, I know you said there was kind of like some stops and starts. Was that, did that all happen when you were over there studying or did some of that journey start before you took that path? Oh, some of that journey started before. Oh my goodness. So yeah. So I, I think the first time I reached out to the agency must've been around 2006, 2007. Um, so probably right before I went to my first ICA gathering in 2007, which was a very long time ago when I went back to uh, who I was as a person. Um, and then I think I, I probably reached out a couple times afterwards. I was um, studying in Korea for the summer as part of the State Department's Critical Language Scholarship Program when I was in graduate school. And then um, that was only for the summer. And then I came back to the U.S. kind of thing. Very nice. Um, so... Obviously, being an adoptee and going on reunion, going even back to Korea are play big parts in the work that you do. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how you knew that was what you were going to go into, uh, either maybe when you were younger or when you got to college. Like, when did that journey towards this type of work start for you? The journey to sort of be engaged with the field of Korean adoption studies and adoption studies broadly began when I was getting my master's degree. So that would have been 2006, 2007. Uh, I was at the London School of Economics and their gender at their gender institute getting my degree in gender and social policy. And when it was time for me to think about what I was going to do my master's thesis on, it was either thinking about uh, legacies of U.S. militarism around uh, camp towns. Um, so thinking about um, women's participation in sex work, as well as thinking about ca- just camp town, um, camp town's existence. Um, different kinds of Korean bodies being used for labor, et cetera, or looking at adoption. I ended up looking at adoption and that kind of directed my path ever since. Um, So that thesis, I was looking at the gendered effects for why South Korea still participates in adoption today. Um, And so from there, I got, I had, had, I think I attended my first con conference in 2007. It was in Boston. That's the same summer I went to ICA for the, and went to Korea back for the first time sort of thing. Um, so you went in hard ter- in 2007. <laughs> yeah, 2007. <laughs> I, so, it, it really was. Well, I think one of the things is too, is how I came to the adoptee community was through academia, which is very different. 
than a lot of other adoptees. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I did culture camp as a kid. Um, my mom at one point helped run the culture camp bookstore. So, you know, I was had, had access to Asian American authors. So I had read Marie Lee's finding my voice, you know, all of those kinds of books or the, um, Oh gosh, Sarah Dolan is going to laugh at me because I've forgotten the name of the author. But um, if it hadn't been for Yoon June, like all of those books um, I had read. But, you know, I really, I mean, like all, many of us, right, was one of a handful, you know, Asian Americans, Korean adoptees at my high school sort of thing. Um, and so I, when I just decided to go to college, I was like, I'm going to find my Asian self. I don't know what that actually means now as a grown up. I was like, oh gosh, <laughs> right, that sounds t- so terrible. But you know, when you're 17 and you're going away and you think you're going to find all these Asian Asians. And then I ended up going to George Washington University in DC, which really, when you think about it, not as many Asians as like all the West Coast people I was looking at. So I'm not really <laughs> sure what my like threshold was, but goodness, those uh, pamphlets really did a good job selling the <laughs> diversity, right? Um, but you definitely lit. found your way there. I mean, you you founded the Asian American fraternity there. So Sigma yeah, Psi so Zeta? I, yeah, so I chartered Sigma Psi Zeta. Um, so we were the first Asian interest story on campus. Um, and so that was a really transformative moment for me. Some of my uh, friends at the... T- that I made through the sorority uh, when I was an undergrad also ended up being adoptees themselves. Oh, cool. um, I'm less involved now as an adult, but like, no, I mean, I think I keep up with what, you know, the chapter is still doing uh, just through social media and that kind of thing. But it just also gets for, for me, at least now being a faculty member, it seems it, there's a, just like a different, I'm in a different place in my life um, with that. I also have um, stepkids who are both in college now. And so it just seems. Yeah, there's like mm-hmm. degrees of separation. Right. Like, I remember yeah. like when I graduated college, I was like, I moved to a new town and I was like, um, I need to find some friends and call it. I, I can still hang out with college kids. And then one year later, I'm like, I'm too old to hang out with college kids. <laughs> so <laughs> like it's it happens. That drop off happens real quick. So I definitely understand being like, maybe not so much anymore. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because like the women that I knew from my sorority, you know, the ones that I've still kept in touch with were friends over social media. You know, when I moved back to the US, finishing my master's and I moved to New York City, I connected with some of the sisters that I knew from other chapters and charters. And so it was a community. But I also think too, you're you're meeting folks at different stages in your life. And so, you know, when you get into your mid 30s, which I broke to a friend of mine. I was like, I think we're kind of almost middle-aged, if not middle-aged. She um, was kind of unhappy with that revelation with me and started laughing. Um, But I mean, I think, you know, the connections that we make always are going to stay with you. It just evolves over time. I think something that's really interesting about how you've come to this, be at this point is in your, your, in your youth, you know, you, your mom was taking part in the culture camp and really like spearheading that. So you had a lot of not just access, but you had exposure to different cultural aspects. Um, I think something really interesting about these conversations that we've had on the show is that you either we we either find adoptees a lot of times who are like myself, no connection to culture or having more access and being able to get into that a little bit more. 
Um, and it sounds like, you know, you were able to kind of start maybe deconstructing and unpacking some of those identity things a little bit earlier. Um, I know you said you start like when you got to college, that was going into unpacking your Asian American identity a little bit more. Was the adoptee identity that you started to unpack? Was that something that happened in those early stages or something that kind of was in and out until you really started to focus your field of study on adoption specifically? So I actually wasn't an, I am in an Asian American anthology, Yellow Girls. Um, so that's edited by Vicki Nam that came out in 2011. So if you ever come across my essay there, I wrote it, gosh, I think the age it says I was at the time was 16. It came out when I was 17. So I probably wrote it sometime or I'm 15, 16, I don't remember totally. But I, I, I'm one of the, I'm either the only or one of the only adoptees in that book, which still, I think, I know it was getting um, sort of referenced over this past year by a lot of different folks, um, in part because of um, what had been going on nationally, um, as well as just thinking about uh, the book coming out in 2001. And so it's been 20 years, right? Yeah. Um, and so with that, I do talk about what it was like for me growing up as an Asian American, as an adopted person. I think these are questions that I'd always been thinking about, um, but I really approached, I didn't really talk about adoption, right? So my parents had no idea that I was even contributed to this volume until like the press packet and the books came to my house. Whoa. So like, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just yeah. kind of wrote it. Um, right. And I think had I sort of had a better sense of who I was or what I was like the bigger picture or the bigger stakes in that, I'm not sure I would have disclosed what I did at the time. Right. So when you think about like what you were, what you were writing at home when you were 16, I don't know if like think about who you were at 16. Right. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> but I think for me, it was just trying to grapple with what it means to be, one of the few Asian Americans and just sort of not having that sense of community. Um, but also realizing too, because of internet technology, <laughs> um, you know, there was an Asian American community out there. Right. And so I was just starting to sort of connect with that. I was also teaching myself Asian American history and like Korean war history. I was kind of a nerd, uh, in high school. So I was reading a lot. <laughs> um, and Wait, the PhD, Huh. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Right. So it was a little on brand. Um, but yeah, it was because of those sorts of moments. I think I was thinking about it, but not in any kind of particular, um, I guess, concrete sort of way. I think it's really incredible that you had that initiative at that age where, because I feel like a lot of the conversations we've been having lately and we have on the show is about a lot about language and how as kids or even as adolescents, uh, teenagers, we didn't have, we weren't able to articulate like that experience or even, especially like for me, I would have been horrified of myself to try and even write something like that or explore that because I was so resistant to that part of my identity. Um, and I think that, I think it's really incredible that you took that initiative and then kind of continued to do that. Even as you got into college, you started different clubs and really immerse yourself because you were seeking that. And I think it's really refreshing to hear because I think from, from adoptees that are older than myself, they, there's fewer stories of necessarily seeking that out. However, um, 
for adoptees that are younger than me, uh, so I'm 31, for adoptees that are like even teenagers or early 20s, they are in that, I see that same vein or that same desire to go out and seek in, in that initiative. And I really, I love it. When do you, I mean, when you see, when you look at the community now, um, do you see some similarities from your journey and like how you took it, even though different time periods, different, te- like you said, technology and access, do you see differences between, or I mean, similarities between what you were doing and what you see in the community now, as you reflect? If I think about sort of then, and now I'm in my, I guess ne- by next year, I'll be in my late thirties. Um, I think what's really changed is the way people can find one another. It's a lot easier now. Um, but there's some things that I don't necessarily think have changed. Right. And sure. I think um, the anti, the rise in anti-Asian hate really demonstrated that when you would hear adoptees who are younger um, kind of reflect on the racism that they encounter. Um, I've had the privilege to also teach at um, the Camp Sejong in New Jersey for one summer um, a couple years ago. And even then talking with youth, it was very clear that a lot of the same kinds of racism microaggressions that I face sometimes continue to face still exist, right? Uh, I think too, I was listening to NPR and I don't get a chance, this sounds so like esoteric, but I don't get a chance to listen to NPR a lot anymore because I'm not <laughs> commuting to work. I th- sure. Right. But I, I happened to catch um, a broadcast where they were talking about adoptive parents wanting to um, talk about anti-Asian racism. Right. And they were, and how um, adoption agencies were kind of facilitating some of this post as post adoption services. And it was one of those things because I don't want to misquote folks, but it was one of those moments where I was like, but, there are adult, ad- there are organizations that have been doing this, right? So I think about CON. Um, I think about the adult adoptee organizations that have been having these conversations with um, through their mentoring programs and all of those other things. So there are, there are avenues there, except for folks aren't even plugging into them still. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, parents always like to think that they know what they're doing and then what they're, they know what they're doing is right. You see this a lot with um, National Adoption Month, right? You see the way in which adoptees face pushback, um, regardless of age, right? Because we're forever perpetual children in some people's eyes. Um, And so there are all these ways that folks can be connecting to this vibrant community to make sure that their kids have access and resources, but not everyone is doing it because because adoption is so hyper-personalized. So whenever anybody critiques adoption as a system or as an institution, people are like, but what about me? What about my family? And this is not only just adoptive parents, this can be adoptees. This is not to say that like they're all X or Y, but really recognizing the way that adoption is such a hyper-personalized topic that sometimes it's really difficult to have these really rich, nuanced conversations because everybody is thinking about their own experiences without recognizing the need we need to be talking about sort of that macro and micro uh levels to adoption 
And on top of that, I, I also agree that it's not all black and white. And it seems a lot of, of cases like that uh, or people discussing it on the Internet are talking about the black and white. But there's so many shades of gray in between and there's so many different levels. Uh, something that I've particularly found by reading you know, all the posts uh, during this month as well. It's it's uh, yeah, it's not just one story or one side. And, uh, um, you know, it's I think more people need to realize that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you talk about adoptive parents coming into this conversation, acting like they know everything. And not only are they not listening to adult adoptive voices uh, when they come to the table with whatever they're coming with, um, there's also now more than enough literature out there, including disrupting kinship. So for me, as an adoptee, like the way that I started to really understand adoption, not only as a system, but uh, a global system and something that is not just systemic, but a complex, like something that really permeates throughout other systems, um, was from reading Adopted Territory and then reading um, Invisible Asians and then going to to save the children of Korea. And then so like when I was first starting, that was a huge part of my journey. And when I when I saw your when I saw you speak at Con last year, um, disrupting kinship was on my list. And as soon as you were done talking, I immediately bought it, got it, read it immediately, and added it to that to the as a fourth as a bookend to kind of those three things as really foundational texts, specifically for Korean adoption, but honestly to start understanding adoption and international adoption as those things. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the journey from the people or the texts that have come before and how you've built upon that with disrupting kinship, how you took that from an idea or however that came up to realizing it fully as the book that we have today. Oh, wow. So I think for <laughs> me, because if it wasn't for people like Tobias Hubinet, Alina Kim, Lena Myung, Kim Park Nelson, who really laid the groundwork for Korean adoption studies. And I think that's really important because this field has been around for quite some time. You know, at the beginning of this, I mentioned that I went to ICA for the first time in 2007. Honestly, the reason that drew me there was the first International Korean Adoption Studies Symposium, which really reflects how much like of a, of a nerd <laughs> I am because I was like, I'm going for the symposium, people. I wasn't even going... Like, I went to all of the other things, right? And it was a great experience. But I was... I, I was going because I wanted to see those folks, right? I wanted to meet them. I had been engaging with, at that point, for the most part, um, a lot of the work they did as graduate students, right? And so, mm -hmm. but I think for me, it's, it's important to call attention to that because as more and more folks get in, involved within the field of adoption studies, or as adoptees are starting to have these conversations, it's critical that people recognize that this field has been around, that there's people having these conversations, and you need to be engaging with that work. Um, this also includes people like Sarah Park Dolan's great work around children's literature and her dissertation looking at adoption representation in children's books, right? Mm -hmm. This includes people like Sarah Duncan Morgan and her work around um, and communication around like birth, uh, family, and reunion, that kind of thing. Hosu Kim has a great book looking at birth mothers, um, and she has been doing such great work there. Um, it's people like Kit Myers. He's, he's, an, he's an Asian adoptee, non-Korean adoptee. Um, and Kit is faculty at UC Merced. And he does really great work. And one of the concepts that I like about his dissertation, and it was a journal article, and I'm hoping it'll be in his book, is talking about adoption through the lens of the violence of love. 
because I think it really captures the reverberations of adoption and what that looks like. Um, because people don't want to, uh, people always want to celebrate adoption. But to circle back to sort of your question that had me think about those folks, I spend a lot of time thinking about their work because those are the folks who came either before me or that I came up with. Mm-hmm. So at my first con conference, I met Elise Preben, who has a book, Meeting Once More, talking about birth, search, and reunion. I met Elizabeth Raleigh, who has a book called Selling Transracial Adoption and Looking at U.S. Domestic Adoption. It's through those spaces that I got introduced to people like J. Ron Kim, right? And so it's I, I think about those folks and it's conver- it's both reading their work as well as just in everyday conversations with them that have really transformed how I ended up approaching thinking about what I did in graduate school when I was working on my PhD and my dissertation that turned into the book with Disrupting Kinship. And so in the book, I coined the term the transnational adoption industrial complex, the neocolonial multi-million dollar industry that commodifies children's bodies. Arissa O oh mentions um, an adoption industrial complex as well at the end of To Save the Children. But for me, when I first uh, wrote about the take and it's because it's spelled T-A-I-C, it, it, you pronounce it as take. I think it's funny. It's I pronounce it the same way. Yeah. So. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad like other people do. It's not just me being like, oh, that's how I, you know. Um, but when I, it's important to recognize the systems and institutions to allow for adoption to thrive. It's important to recognize the, the labor, the, the, both the reproductive labor and the sexual labor of women who facil- who gave birth to adoptees um, to even be, take part in this as sort of commodities. It's critical to recognize the role of orphanages and adoption agencies to um, do what David Smolin writes in terms of child laundering, right? To really move us through, to become, move from orphan to adoptee and those sorts of things. And so in Disrupting Kinship, not only do I trace the origins and sort of the rise of this industrial complex, but then I also explore uh, questions around citizenship, kinship, and adult adoptee activism. And so when you look at the book, I really hope I captured the nuances around the citizenship. I think that conversation has been happening a lot. I know you guys um, had a conversation about Blue Bayou. And I I mentioned the film just because I think of the, the conversations that I've had with folks after um, around adoptee citizenship and thinking about the complexities there, which is why in the book, I specifically call attention to why I use the term undocumented adoptee and not adoptees without citizenship, because I think it's critical that we align um, those without citizenship and their experiences with other undocumented folks, because Mm -hmm. we risk creating a binary of sort of that good immigrant versus a kind of a bad undocumented immigrant um, when really we actually need to have a conversation about immigration, broadly speaking. Um, and that's why, too, in that particular chapter from the book, I spend some time also calling attention to the nuances that we need when we talk about the Child Citizenship Act, because people assume that it's just like this catch-all great piece of legislation. And it 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 is to an extent, but it doesn't cover everyone. So again, I think when we're having these larger conversations, we really need to be pushing for more nuance. Because if not, we risk replicating some of the same issues over and over again, because there are folks who really want to have these kinds of conversations to recognize the complexity. And sometimes, you know, social media isn't the best place to have those complex conversations. And we really need to encourage ourselves to do better 
which is also why in the second half of the book, as I talk about adoptee activism, I, I really hope I'm calling attention uh, to the ways folks have really used social media in different ways to both form community, uh, what Alina Kim talks about in her book, Adopted Territory Around Contingent Essentialism, right, to really have these kinds of conversations. So I guess, Patrick, this is my kind of really long-winded roundabout way to say that I really see myself hopefully building and extending the conversation set forth uh, by my esteemed colleagues around not only the history of adoption, but also really trying to frame it around concept of citizenship, family, and, and activism. Um, so that way, as, as this field grows, folks can talk about how they're building or expanding on these um, nuanced conversations. I will say a few other books that I want to add to your list if you haven't been thinking about them. Uh, Susie Wu has a great book, Framed by War. I'm so in love with it. I really like Corey Graves's book too, uh, Warborn Family, because Corey is looking at Korean Black mixed race adoptees. And so I think you know it's it's a conversation that a lot of folks are starting to have in terms of mixed race adoptees, but I think it's a well needed conversation. Um, but those are the two books that I'm that I that really excited me recently. Um, and same with uh, oh gosh, uh, this new book called Reencounters uh, as well, which is looking at uh, diasporic memory. Um, mm, and sort of Koreans broadly. Um, yeah. I love that you, I talked about, I, I think about it as an expansion on what comes before because you really dig into talking about adoption and adoptees and particularly undocumented adoptees in the larger frame of every other marginalized group. Like you really, it, in, instead of isolating and separating us as we as many people have already done as the narrative normally does to us or as we as adoptees can do and, and get kind of isolated in our own groups you put it in a framework of how we can be how we can actually work towards liberation because we have to do it together as opposed to in our separate groups we can't do it individually we have to work in solidarity with each other um and i really think the best the best way of, of expansion in my mind, the thing that really stuck out with me was the difference between the macro and the micro levels and how you really brought those into focus. Um, and I think anybody who picks this book up is going to have a lot to chew on because it doesn't just sit in one simple or specific category. You really touch on a lot of different aspects of not only the transnational adoption industrial complex, but uh, adoptees specifically on how they're navigating these things. I'm wondering, during all of this work, did you uncover anything specifically that you were surprised by or anything that really you weren't aware that you were going to be either writing about or talking about as you were going through Disrupting Kinship? As I was finishing up the book, I started thinking about the way stock stories are used, right? So thinking about what it means for for adoptees to believe certain information is always true, but then realizing um, somebody is kind of a really good fictional writer. So in the book, I talk about um, looking at the the sort of the case studies um, and like the descriptions that we sort of get that get sent in the, our social studies to our adoptive parents. And when I was at the archives, I re I noticed a pattern, right? So we were all kind of bright-eyed, round-eyed. We had really nice eyes. 
you know, we have good noses <laughs> if they want to, if Thank they you. notice those. Right. But there were, but it was always kind of this similar language. Um, everybody was found at a police station and this isn't trying to be, I'm not trying to be flippant, right. Or, or erase those unique markers to you. So like, if you were like, but I look at my photo that was sent to my adoptive parents, I did have round eyes. I did have a cute nose. Cool. That's great. Not trying again to talk about you as an individual, but I'm really, for me, it really demonstrated the way that these processes were so institutionalized, right? Mm -hmm. That as much as we like to believe we were unique, we were also interchangeable. And I think Diane Borchelium's In the Matter of Cha Jung Hee, the documentary really demonstrates the interchangeability of adoptees and what that looks like. Um, And so... I, so I, I guess it wasn't one of those things that really totally surprised me, but just kind of as I was chewing on it and thinking about that, it really struck me. I was also wrapping up the book, you know, kind of, a, it's funny when you start a project and versus where you are in your life kind of ending a project. And so, yeah. you know, there's a few things where I talk about um, at the end of the book and kind of thinking about the conclusion around family and kinship and what that looks like and what it looks like in terms of the the money that is still getting sent to Korea, not just through folks adopting, but thinking about the monetization of um, adoptee returnees and what that looks like and how much money is getting made off by us going. This isn't to say that I'm going to stop going. I love going to Korea. I miss going to Korea. Um, so in your, your research in kind of your archival digging around adoptee stories, right? You like, we're hearing and reading these recurring themes in a way that would it be fair to say it almost created a mythology around adoption? Like that, that, um, I don't know, like to me, one of the things that I am currently trying to think about and, and read even as I'm, I'm listening to you is like the idea that we were shipped with. I mean, kind of a greater mythological language. And I wonder if that isn't a part of the broader system of adoption and like how language is, is shaped and maybe why we're so uh, often perennially babies is because of the mythology of adoption and the, and the idea of like, well, yeah, so Korean adoptees, you were found at this police station, whatever. And then some Ajima picked you up and like takes you to the orphanage and right. But like that, that for however our stories are, what I um, I'm inferring from what you're saying, uh, not even necessarily what I'm hearing you say, but uh, what I'm morphing is that we each have our own stories that create kind of a, a mythology to, to position ourselves in, but then also that there's like a broader, uh, higher tier of mythology around adoption. Is that accurate? Is that something that's like, oh, that's maybe, or you're like, I, I don't know, I haven't thought about that. Or like, hey, Jay, you're dumb. Stick to making jokes. It's fine if you take the third option. That's totally acceptable. Wasn't going to take the third option. I'll just stick with Baboon Bop. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I I think you're right. I think there is this this narrative that we're constantly told that we were rescued. Um, So it's not just Korean adoptees, right? It's Mm -hmm. the way adoption broadly invokes the notion of child-saving, humanitarian rescue. Um, If it wasn't for adoption... We would all be, you know, languishing in either orphanages, living in precarity. If you were a woman, you were going to become a prostitute, presumably like your unnamed, unknown birth mother um, and that kind of thing. And that's not to denigrate sex work, but rather thinking about the way in which um, sex workers um, by it, within sort of adoption mythology ends up kind of being demonized in these kind to fit sort of this narrative of of 
uplift. And in the case of adoption, transnational adoption, it tends to be thinking about narratives of racial uplift as well uh, because of the transracial component and the majority of us entering white families. That's yeah, that's a. That was a great question. Honestly, thinking about just the, I never thought about it in the in the in the term of mythology, but I think that's a really accurate way, in my opinion, to describe it. Because well, I can't it take is, credit for it, but yeah. Well, because um, the I have mythology a, is that narrative, like she was just like Kim, we were just talking about, you know, and that's I think something that uh, you know I talk about, but I think we talk about here on the show as well is as we've been talking about bringing nuance to that. Yeah, I just wonder if that the idea of us, well, us falling into mythology is part of the abstraction process, right? Is part of the idea that we can remove nuance from stories and part of the way that whether it's us internally or our families broadly, like that we, if we carry our own mythos and then also there is a system of adoption that has its own mythology that like just this regular abstraction allows it then to become a very unnuanced, very black and white take. And you're like, no, this is the story of adoption. This is the, I saved you. I am a good, you know, and then you just move and and creates kind of all these things. And so, yeah, yeah, but just interesting what you said and and how you said it. I was like, Oh, I wonder if that's like literally like uncovering, uh, you know, like the, the etch a sketch on the stone carvings of the mythology of adoption. I don't know. That was really interesting to me. I have a really dumb question. Um, (laughs) I was just going to say though, that's kind of what I was going with. Like what you just said. So I was going to just be like, yeah, what he said, that's the thing. (laughs) Cool. Um, so I have not yet read your book. Uh, it's on my, like Patrick started building a bookshelf and I started on book one and then he went to like book 10 and I'm like, I'm still on book one. Um, (laughs) but can you give me like a, a 30 second or one minute pitch slash summary of, of your book? Cause I think Patrick has a little more questions on it, but like, just so I have like, cause you've, you've kind of talked through like pretty like the, the parts of the book, but just like as a whole, give me that like really high level, just so I have a framework of understanding like where we're going to keep going in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can, I can try. I should probably be better at describing my own own book, <laughs> but you know, this is where I think. That's what the back flap be- is for. Yeah, I just don't have the book. Well, so I think for me, what I do in this book is I look at the, what I call the transnational adoption industrial complex and really thinking through questions about family and, and citizenship and kinship in particular for think for generating the conditions that allowed for Korean adoptees to come to the United States, um, as well as troubling notions of how we understand who adoptees are through the use of examining oral histories, adoptee writing, and then adoptee online activism and documentaries. And so through that approach, I'm hopefully, and I would like to think I did this in my book, um, fleshing out and offering a three-dimensional understanding about the adoption community um, in ways that by both engaging oral histories and looking at documentaries, um, social media, and print writings, I'm able to tell sort of a more holistic and nuanced understanding. Um, So seeing how my work is in conversation with somebody like Kim Park Nelson who draws on sort of uh, um, countless numbers of oral histories, thinking about Alina Kim's um, ethnographic work with adoptees. Um, and again, just continually seeing myself building it, um, building and extending the conversations that they're already having um, to create a more nuanced portrait of how we can really see the adoptee community 
Um, at least that's the hope with the book. I will say as you're reading the book, and this is for anybody who's kind of um, not theory heavy, chapter three, where I talk about and queer uh, Korean adoptive family kinship is like the one sort of like theory heavy chapter. I try to make it as jargon free as possible. But I also know that like, if that's not your jam, you don't have to read that chapter in the book or you can skim it and like (laughs) you wouldn't, but I under, but I think when I, when I write, so not only when I wrote my book, but now I'm working on a a new book project um, as well. When I write, I'm really trying to write for a, a general audience. I'm really trying to be jargon free because I want my work to be accessible to adoptees, to adoptive parents, to adoption practitioners, to children of adoptees. I want it to have both an academic and a non-academic audience because this is important. It's it's the way I engage with the adoptee community it has always sort of been through my my work, whether it's been my work through with Khan or my academic work. Yeah, and I I mean, as a reader, as someone who has read the book, I think okay, that you sir. <laughs> we're flexed. Uh, yeah, I think I, that I is, read books. <laughs> I think that is something that you've definitely accomplished with that because I think that was something I wanted to highlight was the accessibility of this book because it doesn't feel it doesn't feel heavily scholastic in a way that makes it unapproachable. I think that can that can push people away. And that's something that I've as I've been on this journey have advocated for for people to approach these texts and knowing that it's not going to, it shouldn't take you out of it. It might, it can, um, because there are a lot of heavy and and deep concepts that are being dealt with here, but that by engaging with this work, we can have a deeper understanding and more nuanced conversation. And I have something else and I've completely forgot it, but um, you did talk about, you know, something that you're working on now. And that was going to be where I was going next was, you know, this is such, in my mind, a seminal piece of work. Uh, where do you go after disrupting kinship? I feel like it's made a, a huge impact on the community already. Where, where for you is is the next place uh, in terms of study, in terms of research, in terms of sharing? So I'm still looking at Korean adoption. I'm actually looking at Asian adoption broadly. And so the new project that I'm working on, I am fortunate to have a year-long research sabbatical this year. Um, It was delayed from last year. Um, And, you know, and I think for this current project, I'm looking at representations of Asian adopted women and girls in U.S. popular culture in the last decade of the 20th century and the first two decades of the 21st to really think through questions of how rhetoric around colorblindness, multiculturalism uh, helped inform um, how adoptees and adoption was understood. But I specifically focus on sort of race and gender depictions to get at the nuance of what it means to be an adopted Asian American woman um, and girl. Um, because so often adoptive parents or adoptees actually rather reflect on how their adoptive parents were ill-equipped to talk about the way in which Asian women, including myself, were racialized and hypersexualized in particular kinds of ways. Um, so some of that work I've already written about, so it can be found in previous publications. I'm expanding it a little bit more. So I look at Woody Allen's Duny Previn and Mia Farrow, um, to think through questions around, um, kinship and disability and multiculturalism uh, through that kind of very high profile uh, case of many different things. Um, And to also think through questions of sexual violence and coercion 
um, and what that looks like when you are a white adoptee and an Asian adopted person uh, and what that means. Because while SUNY has never publicly really spoken out, um, besides both, you know, reaffirming her relationship with Alan, as well as, um, you know, her, her very limited interviews where she talks about Mia Farrow, I look at um, sort of public records and Alan's, both Alan and Farrow's memoirs and biographies and that kind of thing too, uh, as well as the documentary to have to hope that we can have a more nuanced conversation about what that looks like. Um, at the same time, what I also am looking at um, and what I've written on too, as I'm thinking about um, Twinsters, um, I'm looking at, um, and so that's building off an, an existing uh, piece of publication to really think about um, more mainstream representations of adoption. So um, I think about Twinsters in kind of what it did when it was released on Netflix, right? And so thinking too now about the new documentary Found, um, about that's tr- which I'm not writing about, which I'm interested in though, right? Because I'm interested in thinking about what kind of Twinsters did and what Found is doing, but also thinking about prior to that with somewhere between. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, for me at least, as I've been working on this project and continue to write, I'm thinking about how representations in U.S. popular culture. So again, thinking about documentaries, um, public controversies, right? So thinking about SUNY Previn, um, thinking about television shows and that sort of thing. Well, I think that something that's really struck me about this conversation, well, and which I already kind of knew just from reading Disrupting Kinship and having heard you speak before, is like I was talking about, you know, you deal you deal in a lot of really heavy stuff, um, not only from just a complexity standpoint of trying to unpack a lot of these things like the take, but also with the work that you're doing now. And I think something that I've really been talking about or I've been privy to conversations that have been happening a lot in the community is just how much emotional labor goes into doing work like this. How do you find time to not only maybe do self-care, practice self-care, but how do you balance like your own personal life and then the really deep research and, and immersion that you do in the the work in the adoptee space and just the general uh, Asian American injustice space uh, from an academic standpoint? Um, I think for me, at least, when I think about the work that I do around adoption, you ha- you, yeah, you have to recognize the emotional labor that's involved. You have to recognize the heaviness of the stories and, and the privilege that we have to sort of sit with and wrestle with some of these questions and to give space to folks regardless of where they're in their journey. Because I think for a lot of folks, at least from what I was seeing as I was talking to, to people throughout this pandemic, for some adoptees, this could have been a really transformative moment because they hadn't thought about themselves as Asian American. They haven't really thought about being an adoptee. Um, and so what that looks like, right? So honoring that. And I think we have to. And I saw that a lot too with my work with Khan, right? You get you see folks at in various points within their journey. And I think it's important that we recognize that we're not all walking that same path. There may be similarities um, as we're learning more and reflecting more about adoption. Um, For me, how I've always approached this, though, has been through my work. And so sometimes I 
how I engage with the community ebbs and flows. I'm also in a different point in my life. I now also have a toddler. Um, he's two. Um, and so thinking about what that means for me and what that looks like is, is constantly shifting, constantly changing in terms of the capacity that I have. Right. So I think about just in terms of the last, um, since March of 2020, when everybody's lives have changed, um, and, you know, thinking about how for me watching folks do more things right now is the, is things open up. I'm like, but I have an unvaccinated child who's now under five, right? So thinking about what that looks like. And so I hope folks can trust that we can have, again, these nuanced, rich conversations, right? Where we recognize the gravity of the pandemic and what it has done to families, how it has decimated, um, particularly certain families of color, indigenous families in ways that aren't necessarily equitable. But I think about too then when talking about kind of the work that I've been doing, uh, both within the adoptee community, but also kind of my investments broadly around social justice and ethnic studies um, and that kind of thing, is really trying to make space to have conversations with good friends. So one of the people I didn't mention, who is an academic that I've become, that I always was friends with, but we've become, our friendship has grown stronger, I'd like to think is Kelly Condit-Tresha. And she's doing some really interesting work thinking about the histories of adoption, not just Asian adoption, but also thinking about it and contextualizing within broader transracial adoption in the United States. So I think about those kinds of relationships um, that are really exciting um, and they're sustaining, right? And thinking about the ways we're connecting with folks in other in other ways. Um, I, I also should freely admit, I don't have time now for some reason, but like all throughout graduate school, I played so much Candy Crush. Like I was like <laughs> super into Candy Crush, you guys. Uh, so like when you think about the things, right, <laughs> that like um, sustain us in different kinds of ways, it was that. Or like if you talk to any close friends of mine, I watch like terrible television shows and I like to like just kind of binge watch now that it's the holiday season, I really enjoy some super saccharine holiday movies as well. Mm. So I think it's about recognizing what you need to do to sort of recharge yourself um, mm. and what that looks like. So I what will I'm hearing also you say admit, is make time yeah. for Bachelor in Paradise. So I actually don't watch Bachelor in Paradise. Okay. That's the only one that my wife watches. And I, so I, I when I talk it makes about, me like, physically angry. <laughs> well, I don't understand. Like there's so many things, but you know, no, when I talk about like, um, so I still watch Grey's Anatomy, right? Oh, okay. Like I, 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 I still persist and do that. Um, I watch things like, um, all the NCIS shows. Like I used okay. to watch all of them. <laughs> Right. Is like, this what you define? Is like, this the hot take the, that you guy. like? This is the trashy TV. <laughs> oh well, I mean, but you know, I there's also K dramas thrown in there every once in a while as well. Oh, yeah. But like, um, yeah, no, but I think it's about figuring out what you want to watch and like do that, or or figure out if like working out is your thing, like do that. I kind of stopped doing some of what I was doing because of the pandemic and stuff. Um, you know, and I know folks have kind of are either resumed or dipped their toe back in the water, depending on sort of what's going on in their own lives. But yeah, I think for me, it, it's about creating space 
and having those conversations. I really hope too that as as folks start gathering again and you know having these conversations with adoptees, we also I don't know. I mean, think about what it means to have some joy too, um, and what that looks like for folks. So yeah, and I should you... probably stop or I could ramble more. Right? <laughs> I was just curious if you were oh, going to eventually get into also why your sorority nickname is Impulse. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I haven't thought about that in so long. Um, we actually can't talk about how we got oh. a sorority nickname. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For the listener. Um, so that's an off air conversation. <laughs> but no, but you know, what's funny though. It's secret. It's like, it. I once asked my student, my college students to Google me and like, it's amazing because I did have a student who actually did a deeper Google dive search to find out about my sorority. Cause like most people don't like, that's not like that comes up. Um, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's awesome. now that I'm like, bright awesome. riding. I'm, in, I'm into the Google sleuthing too. So sorry. That one came no, up for me. Yeah, that's something that we found out a couple Google, episodes a ago. A good Google sleuth is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take number one. He doesn't actually use Google. <laughs> Yeah, I find lie, Ask though. Jeeves is much more. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I feel like we yeah. have that. Com- we've had that conversation already. Nah, um. Nathan. Nathan probably uses like DuckDuckGo with a VPN. Oh He's like, God. why are people from Siberia <laughs> looking me up? Incredible. Um, well, Kimberly uh, or Kim, I don't know. I don't know why I just did that. Doctor McKee, I can go by either. Thank you, Doctor. Yeah, Dr. McKee, I, I'm personally really <laughs> excited to, uh, because I've been editing these interviews, go back and listen to this because there's so okay, much flex. shared even outside of what I feel like you've talked about in the book that are like truly things that can help other adoptee or adoptees who might be even just approaching this conversation for the very first time. So before we move to our snack, I was wondering if you could share just any any piece of advice or words of wisdom for adoptees who may be coming to the table or this episode may be their very first time that they've heard some of these terms, different things. Um, what, what advice would you give to them uh, as they move on through their journey? I just gave this advice to somebody who is a Chinese adoptee. It's the advice that just because we're all adopted, we're all not going to be friends. And I, I say that because I think Sometimes the adoptee community can be so overwhelming and it's so exciting to meet other adoptees. And then you're like, but wait, there's adoptees that I don't get along with. And it can sometimes feel weird. But we have to remember that adoptees are like any other person that you're going to meet. They just also happen to be adopted and that's your shared identity experience. And to just because you meet one person and that you may not sort of click with or whatever, or like it just seems a little weird, like meet more. Right. And you'll find (laughs) you'll find your community. But you also shouldn't feel like you have to force relationships either. And if something feels different, think about why that feels different. Is it different because you've never done it before? Or is it different because you're getting a weird vibe? Right. And I think that's important. Or is it different because you realize politically you may not be aligned? Um, And so that's. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I, I think that's my biggest piece of advice, because sometimes we need to have like permission to be like, yeah, I. You're cool, but like, I don't necessarily want to hang cool. out with you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great advice because just a couple of days ago for NAM, people were writing about the adoptee community. And that is something that I think a lot of people do re- uh, realize eventually as they start getting into it is they're like, 
wow, I, I really connect with a lot of people and then I don't connect with a lot of people. And, and it's because, yeah, like you just said, we're connected on the adoptees only and that shouldn't yeah. force a, a friendship or even any trust in a person either. So, yeah. Well, and it can be such a slap to the face. Like with, with the inception of our show and really our relationship, it was like lightning in a bottle. Um, and I think that was such, such a wonderful thing. And then for me, like I'd met a number of adoptees who I really vibe with, like kind of the same thing. And so I'm like, oh, this must be the way that it is being inside of the adoptee community. So to your point, remembering that adoptees are in fact human beings and are allowed to be in fact human beings is a really nice, like, no, you need to, I mean, it's fine to not vibe with everyone. You're not, you mm-hmm. know, in the same way that like I'm a Cowboys fan, but then I meet some Cowboys fans and I'm like, I never want to be a Cowboys really? fan ever again. Uh, wait, I'm really? Dallas. You are? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Oh, really? Sometimes I'm like, I wish that I had grown up not in Dallas so that I didn't have to be a Cowboys fan. But She's closed here I am, the Zencaster. So. She's yep. logged it's off fine. the Zoom. <laughs> I, okay. I mean, you, you are now I, that I, example of who she doesn't want to be friends yeah, with. Yeah, no, that's, you know, that's <laughs> fine. If you, no, that's if you're cool. like, you know what, actually, we don't. But did you like Okay. Yeah. Okay. We need to take a break and hash this out off air. When we come back, we'll be we'll be eating some food together because meal times are the place for reconciliation. Here's the break. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> Welcome back to the John Chi Show. We are here after an amazing interview with uh, Dr. Kimberly McKee, or as she wants us to call her, just Kim. Uh, we are here. We're besties now. Just Kim. Just Kim. Sorry, just, just Kim. Kim. Yeah, you just know what Kim I'm saying. Right. Just Kim. Just, we're just going to call okay. you just Kim. Well, just Kim, um, okay. we have a Ooh, snack today. What a dad <laughs> joke. We have a snack today that I sent you, and I'm excited to try it because I love churros. But uh, have you had this churro product before? I have not, and so I'm kind of excited. Okay, what is it first? What what kind of churro? Do you know what? Do you know what this is? All I know is it's chocolate. Okay, and it's mini, and I'm reading the English words amongst all the hangul. So. I don't even know what the little things at the bottom mean other than potential percentages of what's inside right. it. So the big Korean says mini churrosu. Okay. The little Korean first line says kanasu chokorit, chokorit. Chocolate. And so something about, I'm assuming dark chocolate hmm. is 4.2%. I don't know. Maybe it's milk chocolate. No, yeah. milk is uyu. I don't know what it oh, is. Oh, you're down here. It's now. mini churros. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a mini churro bag. It looks like a giant there. chip bag, though. Like I've never seen this many churros. Yeah, but it opens along weird. the long edge. I don't. Yeah, so oh. like this stuff is usually on top, but this yeah. one is in a. Oh. It's so in the middle. I don't know. Yeah. Huh. I don't know how to open it. I don't. Know. I mean, I don't know. Well, we'll see. I will say I just, that the mascot on the front, I was like, okay, yeah. winking at, giving us a good wink. But then I go on the backside, and he's there three other times, winking every time. So now I'm wondering, has his eye been poked out? And he's only got one eye, or it's an? It, I like mystery on my on my packaging. So I'm just gonna I'm say the designer that. was lazy. <laughs> yeah. Copy and paste. I can't do two circles one eye. One uh, back to back. I can only. Do I one. think it's supposed to be like evoking excitement, like. It's yummy. Wink. I don't know. <laughs> I like so it. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's flirty. Maybe it's I don't know. But it is manufactured by Crown. So this oh, is by Crown. Product. It's a Crown product. 
I also oh. like that this says at the bottom, the facility that handles this also does peanuts, egg, walnuts, prawns, and crabs. I don't know why you're so into <laughs> allergen notification. Like, it's like, uh, everyone, I love that these have the allergens listed. Because my case. kids are allergic to peanuts. That's why. Oh. So I so look We up did find that, that out kind of through frequently. the course of the show. Yes, we did. Oh, <laughs> one time, one time Nathan show. didn't pay attention to the allergens. And I like, don't oh, remember what kid. episode that was, but don't worry, everyone. My kids are still alive. So <laughs> let's crack Ooh, into this, this one. Great disclaimer. This is, my kids good are thing. still alive. Wow. They're a lot smaller. Than I thought. They're like, yeah, mm-hmm. they're mini churros. There's a friend of the show. Well, Sarah Dolan and her husband, Jeff. Oh, yeah. Gave me a care package when I went and met them when she was, or they were in Champagne. PD. And they had a mini churro, different brand. This is maybe just as good. Potentially better. Ma'am. Dolan's, I apologize. I. But thank you. I would Chat really out. like to put. Milk on this and turn it into I a cereal. I was about to say, man, this is a cereal through. This a is a cereal snack if I ever had one, or ice cream snack. Ooh, we do have milk man, downstairs too. This is really good. I don't think I can eat the whole bag, but like, it's super good. Well, really, that's probably good. This says there's 4.5 servings per container. So. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah, I will say this is one of the very first snacks that we've had that is not one single one package is the whole serving. Normally, okay, I also, feel like in all of that, we find that's one serving. It's a big this bag. Is like the size of my forearm, so yeah. it's yeah, like a even significant. this size of bag. I feel like they're usually it's called like one serving. Maybe because oh, yeah. there's less product, but in Korea, I feel like that's a big thing. Is putting one serving in each package, <laughs> or even a fraction of a serving in multiple packages. Oh, you have yeah. to eat four <laughs> packages to equal yeah. one serving. <laughs> we have had ran into that many times. <laughs> no, this is. Uh, I mean, granted. Churros, in my mind, have never really been crunchy because, you know, yeah, it's just not a crunchy product. But but this is good. This is like a – I've never had the churro cereal, which I I have seen at the market before. Um, no one else has had that. Okay. No, wait, I didn't know churros weren't supposed to be crunchy. Have I only had them fried as a churro? Well, I mean, they're, they're – No, they're supposed to be like – have a chew, crisp crunchy exterior, on the outside, but then like uh, – Yeah, like kind gummy of, on the inside chewy, or yeah. chewy dough okay. on the inside. All right. Yeah. I was like – Man, I've been, I don't but know. But they're not supposed to be like a cracker, like not this. a crack, yeah, gotcha. or a cereal. Yeah. I mean, this is like a chocolate Captain Crunch churro. It's so good. Yeah, but, but it's stop. really good though. I know. Mm-hmm. I'm trying not to eat the rest of it. But I also good. I haven't eaten dinner yet, so <laughs> doesn't help. I'm about to spoil my dinner right now. <laughs> I'm not going to because I want to eat these when I get back. Nope. <laughs> All this right. Let's Kim. jump into ratings. Yeah. I don't know that I have anything else to say besides. It's I don't really either. Good. There's also like. Either. Is there a hint of cinnamon? Am I making that up? Yep, I can get nope, a little there's cinnamon yeah. tiny cinnamon. Mm-hmm. I think that like cinnamon. that's really elevating yeah. this whole thing for me. And All right, caramel let's sauce. Oh, the caramel I can't taste, but it's the it's the yeah. ganache chocolate. I felt like now oh, that I'm looking at the ingredients list, mm. when I opened it up, I could just it was like that overpowering chocolate scent. It's delicious. So it's not mm-hmm. the pea flower that you taste because there's that in there. Okay, <laughs> okay sir. <laughs> Mr. Bone Marrow, get out of here. Sorry. Speaking of Bake Off, I was just in the dentist the other day and they had uh, British Bake Off playing while I was in the chair. I'm like, I don't really think this is fair. And you're like, <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a cavity. <laughs> yeah, I was like, so that you wait can- a minute. <laughs> They're like, you have a cavity. I'm like, it's from the show that you just made yeah. me watch. Pea Do flour. You're playing Cake Week on repeat. <laughs> Exactly. Pea flour is good for protein, just so you know. There you go. All right, well, how many pea flowers uh, out of five <laughs> are you giving this product? Nathan. 
Nathan. Not, so I was no. asking you, obviously. Asking me, I, I think right it's perfect. I'll give it a five out of five. Wow. Nothing else to say, but it's kind of nothing else to say about it. I, there's nothing that would make it better. There, I mean, other than if I was dipping it in chocolate sauce, caramel sauce, or eating it with milk, but... <laughs> As far he as said it's perfect, and he lists off seven things that he would add to it. <laughs> but I think it would have like only it. elevated. I'm, like I'm, I'm a guy who always wants the cherry on top of the Sunday, so uh, okay. yeah, that's okay with me. I'm here for uh, it. Just wanted to point it out, KJ. What are you? How many pea flowers out of five? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm also gonna give this five pea flowers, um, <laughs> which is surprising to me because, as as we all know, uh, I'm not huge on sweets. Yeah, this true. is great. I the could high dessert rating for you. Bag. Yeah, uh, it's really good. And with or without the milk, I don't know that I would dip this necessarily in anything else. But like, yeah, I definitely want some milk chase. I don't know, man. It's so good. I can't. I don't Sarah, you better get in here. I'm going to eat all of it otherwise. <laughs> okay, well, we right, go on. Sarah. Kim, how about you? Out of five, what, what are you going to give these? A five. I think I agree that we could dip them into something else. But like they're still good on their own. But they're so good yep. on their own. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like a standalone. But if you wanted to elevate it and take it to the next level, you add something else. That's true. Like, like that icing cream that you dip in. Like that's what like I would really like to dip these. Yes, like yes. Dunkaroos. Like Dunkaroos. Dunkaroos. Yeah. Now that that's I'm showing so it to you, just you guys, does it also look like an okra? <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, I can see that. Yeah. I can but see that, that. Why would you? Why would you make that that visual association for the listeners who can't see it? They're like, imagine chocolate okra. Gross. No, this is so good. It's got two perfect legs that it can stand on. And then if you dunk on it, it gives it an extra two legs to stand on. That's four legs. That's a lot of yeah, standing. Yeah, that's like excellent it. math, yeah. sir. <laughs> I try. I try. Um, I'm going to give it a five, too. Uh, it's great. Uh, my five, definitely related to the packaging and the mystery of the character. I want to know more backstory about this character. Uh, Mr. But this is an excellent snack. I cannot wait to get home from dinner and eat the rest of these. Um, that's a, our, one of the, I think, I don't remember the last time we've all done five. So this I is like a perfect it. score. It's a I know. good snack. Good job, yeah. Nathan. You're good welcome. I, uh, I, 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 I put Way the, to go, baboon bop. I put the chestnuts back down. So you're, you're welcome. Uh, I, I appreciate it. No, no more chestnuts until we get to Korea. Then we'll, we'll revisit that. Then. Okay. Yeah, um, we'll have to figure that one out. Um, well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you so much for everything that you shared. Uh, again, can't wait to go back and just revisit this episode many times. Um, for the listeners at home, for people who might be new to your work, uh, where can people find you? How can they support you uh, however you want to be supported? Sure. You can go to my website, which is mckeekimberly.com, which is kind of a boring website. So actually, maybe don't go to my website, but it exists. <laughs> so it's there. Um, but it's you can website. follow me on Twitter. It's got a lot of so nice resources on it, actually. Yeah. Oh, well. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad they're useful. You can also find me on Twitter at Makiki. So it's my last name and then K E E again. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me. Perfect. If you want to get a hold of us, you can go to joshyshow.com. Wait, what? Pick up, pick up her book, Disrupting Kinship. Oh yeah. Pick up her book, Disrupting Kinship. This is going to be the longest resource list that we've ever included on the John Chi Show uh, show notes. Uh, I've, Cannot even count the number of books that were listed off. That's why I have approximately to go back and fourteen. Again. Approximately not including 14. all of the authors. more than I've ever read in my oh, life. Yeah. Exactly. Um. <laughs> That's great. I was like, I yeah. love that you just have a bibliography in your brain hole. And you're just like, yeah, and these are all the people. That's that work. That's that work. Yeah, um, I can't name two authors. So okay, wow. all right. Well, I was worried actually as I was listing them off. I was like, oh my gosh, what if I forgot someone? 
Like, I think that was my <laughs> bigger concern. Mm. Well, if you have anybody else, just let send them to me, and I'll put them in the I'll put them on the the list for sure because people and many more and many more. Okay, um, you can find us. You can go to our website, johnshishow.com. You can go support. You can go to the store. We have merch. We have all different kinds of stuff there uh, and ways to engage with us. If you want to find us on social, we are at John Chi Show. Um, we also love to hear from you via email. Uh, we've had a lot of great conversations started that way. You can do that. Or send an email to us at johncheeshow at justlikemedia.com. Um, we would also love it if you got onto Apple Podcasts and left us a rating and a review. Uh, please make the rating five stars. The review can be as disparaging as you want it to be, uh, but please make sure it's a five stars. That is our <laughs> only request. Um, yeah. If you want to find me, <laughs> if you want to find Pretty me, please. you can find me at Patrick in the World on Instagram, and that's it. Nathan? You can find me at KJ Rocky <laughs> wherever I want to be found on the internet. Sorry, I didn't know that you were going to jump in. No worries. That's perfect. That's fine. fine. I'm, and I'm in Nowak. That's about it. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Uh, he's what? done. He, I'm Thumbs in done. Nowak. Good day. And scene. <laughs> and, and I Paul eat Baboonba. Yeah. <laughs> and I eat Baboonba. Yeah, all you can right. find him on, on Twitter as at Baboonba. Yeah. All right. Well, this wraps up an incredible, another incredible episode. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, to our listeners, we will see you next week. Johnchi Heyo. Johnchi Heyo.
didn't expect that to, Cut. to dovetail to transition yeah. into the food. Yeah, yeah, I grew well, up in Dallas, so I, I like, mean, I love the Cowboys. Up, my mom, my mom has been a Cowboys fan since like Roger Staubach. Are you a Bills fan? No, God, no, fuck that. Okay. Sorry, that was really no. I'm not. I'm glad we I'm got not. that recorded. Sorry. I can't yeah. wait to plot that. In the <laughs> That's Are the you intro. Bills? No. Oh hell no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. Sorry. Well, you know, I think when you're in elementary school and you you continue, I mean. Second place is still losing, man. And so like, yeah. you, you, you keep <laughs> yep. going. Hot take. Uh, it's not yeah, a hot take. That's just honest. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, it's the come first on. of the no, losers. I, you know, I just... Yeah. The yeah. bills, but like, I, I don't know. I So my mom is uh, has been, still is a big Dallas fan. Um, but, mm. you know, it was really hard. Tony Romo. Was, I like Tony Romo. I am a big, I'm a big Tony Romo fan. I'm just going to be, I'm going to say it right now. I think, but you I, know what? I think he's a good announcer. I, I actually don't like him that much as a, as a, uh, okay. what's the, yeah, I this guess an, Tony an announcer. Tony Romo over here. no, I just like, I think I've he did a great job and he just like didn't have the team around him. I don't even know who Tony like, really Romo is. He's a Dallas quarterback before Dak. <laughs> It's well, fine. Whatever. I don't want football. This is all going to be the pre, the intro to the show anyway. If you wouldn't have bumbled that, that old. It might be a different oh, career. Yeah. We talk about I, food. You know, I, it's just funny. Um, gosh, I probably I'm like you, you guys are recording this. You could use this for any purposes, and I and here I am. Just this is the cold. Yeah, open. you're gonna see. No, Doctor Kimberly McKee hates the Bills and the Cowboys. <laughs> it's just a headline. Yeah. Right? Hot take. Yeah, yeah but How take to his T A I C. Just <laughs> yeah. nothing faster. to do with adoption. What did you say about the Bills? What? I can't this, said this that. was the thing that BuzzFeed picked up on. Uh, <laughs> let me call TMZ real quick. Um, that is amazing. All right, do we all have our? Oh yeah, sorry. Video? I am so used to no one. I, I should fix my background. Not that you're using video, but I'm like no one ever. Um, You know, I had finally secured morning calm status on Korean Air, 
And I was like super stoked. And I know this sounds like my incredible first world problem, but I was like really excited about it. And like I've been using it and it doesn't give you like a ton of perks, but it was still it something you, like I worked just hard. <laughs> it's the little it hard for this. Um, <laughs> and so, and, and, but I and say, their Korean food is like really legit though like it's yeah, really I, I think it's tasty think and maybe that's too. just like the adoptee in me you know being yeah. like oh that Korean air Korean food but you know I think as as airline food goes I always it's like one of the better mm-hmm. it's really funny um, I would much but also that, that. <laughs> when I would fly, uh, when I fly, when I used to go to London and stuff and fly British Airways, I would get vegetarian because I could get some really good vegetarian Indian. Mm, yeah, that way oh, that's, on that that's a good idea. Yeah, shoot. Huh. Yeah. So that that's I like another, that. I guess, tip if you are engaging in any kind of international <laughs> trips to the UK, <laughs> you should try that out. Um. But I, anyways, I don't even know what we're talking about. I'm now so, thinking I about like, a question. airplane food and travel. Yeah. <laughs> I had a question. 